Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, a network for early career researchers. Hello, my name is Anna Volkmer and I am delighted to be hosting this podcast today for the NIHR Dementia Researcher website. So um, I'm a speech and language therapist by background and I've uh, just almost finished a PhD um, doing research with people with language-led dementia. And I am also particularly interested in decision-making, mental capacity and consent, both in the clinical sense and the research sense. So this week, we're actually going to discuss consent. Um, now, the English and Welsh Mental Capacity Act of 2005 provides guidance on the process of gaining consent from potential research participants in these countries. It is not uncommon for consent forms for research studies on dementia to comprise really small, compact, jargon-laden texts. It's really difficult for people to follow. And it can make it really difficult to ensure that individuals with dementia are actually able to access information and make an informed decision about participating in research. And participants have often said to me that they're actually signing consent forms based on the fact that they trust the professionals or the researchers that they're actually working with, rather than that they necessarily understand all the content. But are things changing? So today, I've been joined by three early career researchers who've gained a massive amount of experience in consenting people to participate in their studies, both those who do and those who don't actually have capacity to do this for themselves. So I'd like to introduce Dr. Clarissa Giebel, Dr. Ida Suarez-Gonzalez and James Fletcher. So, all of you, the first question, could I perhaps ask you to all introduce yourselves and perhaps share a little about your own research? Yeah, hi, my name is Clarissa Giebel. I'm a dementia care researcher at the University of Liverpool and the NIHR ARC Northwest Coast. So, my research, uh, my background is neuropsychology, but um, at the moment I focus a lot on health inequalities and people living with dementia um, and trying to find out if there are any barriers or facilitators that help or hinder people stay at home for as long as possible. So some aspects I look at are rural versus urban living or deprivation, which is very high in the northwest coast of England, um, or ethnicity and gender, just in a nutshell. Great. Thank you, Clarissa. Aida? Um, I'm Aida Suarez-Gonzalez, I'm, I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. I trained in Spain and now I work as a clinical scientist in the Dementia Research Center here at UCL. And um, my research is focused on developing um, assistive technologies and interventions to support people living better with dementia. And I'm mainly focused on um, people affected by atypical forms of Alzheimer's disease and frontotemporal dementia. Fantastic. Thank you. And James? Yep. I'm James Fletcher. I'm a teaching fellow at King's College London. Uh, my main research looks at role negotiation in informal dementia care networks but I also do do a bit of work on the Mental Capacity Act and it's an issue that really interests me. Fantastic so we've got three very well informed people to chat with us today and all of whom I've met before so this is going to go swimmingly mm -hmm. we're all going to be able to chat loads so James let's start with you 
Um, how um, would you actually explain consent in dementia research? So what it is, why do we do it? Um, just in case anybody doesn't actually know, and perhaps bearing in mind that some of our listeners are actually from overseas and not from the English and Welsh constituencies that are covered by this mental capacity legislation that we are. So I think consent in itself is uh, quite a simple concept in terms of how we ensure that somebody is willing or happy to participate in a research project and they're not being made to. Um, The issue really with consent is informed consent. So we qualify that as informed consent, which raises questions about you, how you adequately inform somebody um, about a research project before they become involved in that, especially if that person has a cognitive impairment and therefore potential difficulties processing information. Um, And so that's where the difficulties really arise in relation to dementia research specifically. And then there are various ways that we go about doing that, typically through information sheets. And written information sheets. Yeah, written information sheets. um, As you said, these can often be quite complicated, uh, but often in dementia research we use what are sometimes called easy read sheets. So mm-hmm. they're simplified information sheets stripped down to the bare basics mm-hmm. um, with large font, uh, accessible text, these sorts of things to try and convey as much information as possible uh, without overburdening potential participants. Thank you. That's really helpful. So um, I thought I'd throw the floor open a little bit Uh, now and just ask everybody to tell us a bit about their experiences of actually gaining consent in dementia research and perhaps invite people to share some specific examples of what they've done. I've worked in dementia research for about eight years now I think or maybe a bit more so I think only in the past few years I've kind of got my head around it and felt much more comfortable in, in taking informed consent and assessing mental capacity just because there's sometimes almost like a, a grey line where you don't really know does this person have mental capacity or not. So one of the things I've learned throughout the years is whenever I feel the slightest feeling of I'm not too sure, maybe this person doesn't have mental capacity, I'd rather um, then get the consultee to sign a consent form. Not on behalf of the person with dementia, but to provide informed consent for the person with dementia um, with their best interest in mind. So, But one in one example I've had recently, so I'm doing a bit of care home research at the moment in the northwest coast. So we're doing a lot of focus groups with residents mm. and, and obviously people that live in care homes, they're often, if they do have dementia, they're quite advanced anyways. So you kind of always have to think, oh, they might lack the capacity. What was interesting was that care home stuff, it was actually a really nice care home. So care home staff brought in all these residents saying, yes, they, they have capacity to consent. Yes, yes, yes. So I assessed capacity in a lot of those residents and none of them had mental capacity according to the research standards, okay. which makes me think, are there different expectations to capacity in people that directly work with them on a day-to-day basis as opposed to research? So I rather stay on the safe side 
with so, research. And I guess it's worth us saying that here that um, when we talk about the capacity to consent or the, to make a decision yeah. um, in England and Wales, that means the Mental Capacity Act has defined um, the ability to make a decision as being able to understand, retain, uh, weigh up and express a decision. And that's not the same across, for example, in Scotland and um, Northern Ireland have slightly different nuances um, to to the well in Northern Ireland actually their their mental capacity bill hasn't actually been passed and isn't in practice yet but certainly in Scotland there are some different nuances to that definition and um, but it's interesting that you would say that perhaps different professionals have different def well I was going to say definitions but that is not right because mental capacity is the definition that the act is the definition perhaps perhaps different levels it's really yeah. interesting and a bit worrying a bit. I mean, if it's just about, if you just ask a resident, would you like a hot drink or would you like to watch some television and they say yes or no and you kind of interpret that, that that's different. But then it makes me think of all the other activities that care home staff have to do. And what if then the residents don't actually want that done, but the care home staff interprets that as yes, I give yeah. my... So I'm, I was yeah, just... it's a really interesting question. Although it might be more about them not understanding the research because it's decision specific, isn't it, yeah. as well? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's a really interesting point, though. Thank you. How about you, Ida? Would you like to share some examples? Yeah, and actually somehow related to, to your experience. Um, so I've been taking consent for 15 years now. Um, I work for many years in a dementia unit in, in a hospital in Spain. And um, I, I remember this... Um, yeah, I have this memory of, of this man who was a participant in one of our studies and I was still um, a junior clinician. And, and this person asked to be reconsent every time that he came for a research visit because he could not remember very well what okay. has been going on okay. in between visits. So he asked He that. asked, yeah, yeah he yeah. asked if he... If Every single time that he came for a research visit, he could be explain everything yeah. in the project and we could make sure that he still agreed yeah. with what he had signed. Good. And I found it, you know, because no one has, this, this was completely new. I have ah. never bumped into a situation like that before, but I, I, I saw how the team and the PI managed the situation. So the doctor that was in charge of the study, he was very accommodating and he, he had a conversation with this person. And of course, we agreed that this was the way we were going to do it with him. And the whole team worked together to make it easy for everyone. And that's how we did it. Yeah. And that was a turning point for me because yeah. the determination of this man trying to retain his autonomy, you know, and, 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 and also making this effort for explaining that his self-determination was important and being brave enough to ask this, Very you know, brave. because these research environments in a hospital, they, they can be intimidating. Yeah. And he, he did this and also the reaction of the PI and the doctors that were so, you know, um, um, understanding and flexible and respectful that that was a turning point for me because it added a different dimension to my understanding of the consent process. And I understood that it wasn't only about a legal, ethical requirement, a bureaucracy. Yes. It could be 
a human relationship and it could be flexible and you could be actually supporting um, people with cognitive difficulties to remain in power yes. and to remain autonomous. Yes, absolutely. So that, that was an experience that really changed the way I look at consent. I really like you use the word empowered. I really, I believe that too. And I'm, I think that's a lovely example. Too often I hear professionals saying, well, if they didn't retain it from last week, maybe we should be reconsidering whether they have capacity. But actually the, the legislation says you just need to be able to retain the information in order to make a decision. Exactly. And that, you know, you don't, that means not from week to week to week. And he did retain at the moment. Mm, and he did understand. Exactly. And actually his decision remained constant right. till the end of the study so he was deciding the same and and he he, he was able to re to remember uh, some generalities about his previous visit mm. but he felt he he was really trying to um you know to deal and to understand who he was with his alzheimer's him, and yeah. he was you know trying to find his new identity and retain his previous identity and he was doing it through this kind of actions and I think he he gave you know it was like a gift for all of us mm. and he made a massive contribution to our sensitivity yeah that's a very yeah. moving story yeah. wow James hard act to follow <laughs> no I'm, uh, I'm relatively new to assessing capacity um so I've been doing it for four years um but my first one always sticks with me because it was a man who, again, was really borderline. And it struck me on the drive home. I mean, obviously, when you do your first capacity assessment, you're already sort of hyperthinking everything. Yeah. Um, but it really struck me that a group of researchers, say we have 100 researchers assessing capacity, 50% are saying yes, capacity, 50% are saying no, no capacity. So it hits you. There's always this sort of subjectivity and a little bit of ambiguity to capacity because however much you try to define capacity, it's not rigidly defined. For example, you can't use cognitive batteries to no. measure capacity, which I find really interesting that that's not the case. But there are really good reasons for that because right. it means that decisions are situational. Um, and also that because they can't, agree in the research literature what the kind of core cognitive uh, skills are that comprise decision making yeah. so it's really tricky to then design a, a, a formal assessment around that but I, yeah. I, I like the fact that you you're talking about this gray zone I find that the conversations I have about capacity assessments are often about the ones where you're not sure whereas the ones who clearly do have capacity and the people who clearly don't have capacity that probably forms 90% of most people's, and I guess I'm coming from a clinical background, 90% of most people's clinical work, but it's the ones where you're not quite sure that are the ones that really worry people yeah. um, and can be really, really difficult to... Yeah, and I think it's because I conduct research with people who still live in their own homes, um, supported quite a lot in, in many cases, but they do tend to be yeah. around that area, so it is often hard to decide and I think that that was quite unnerving at first in terms of who am I to cast these seemingly arbitrary judgments over people um, because it is serious you are deciding someone's status in yeah. the eyes of the law it yeah. is a legal capacity but the more I looked into it I found that you have these two you have the human rights approach where mm. legal rights are inalienable so because you're a person 
you have legal rights and they can never ever be challenged and then you have capacity approaches um, and most countries in some form take a capacity stance whereby it is deemed that a certain level of cognitive impairment means that you don't have legal capacity to make certain decisions um, and I think in the balance of things that's probably a better approach in terms of safeguarding it's massively problematic in many yeah, respects I'm smiling. I'm, but it's better yeah. than a sort of free-for-all yeah, system yeah. it's yeah. a very tricky um it's a very tricky thing i think to get it completely right for everybody you're right yeah. and i think that that i think you're right it's about safeguarding as well as empowering isn't it yeah um but and we're already starting to get onto problems and i'm really um interested that you know, Clarissa, your your example, your experience was you're already reflecting on some of the problems of gaining um, consent. So I just wondered if you could tell us a bit more about the problems you've experienced, both in gaining consent itself and in the practices of gaining consent. Um, so that was one example with the, with the care homes. Good one. Um, yeah. So problems in terms of gaining consent. So um, I've done most of my research is really in the home environment of, of the person living with dementia. Often they have a family carer. Um, one of the things that that is an example as well that uh, I that sticks with me on an emotional level as well is a gentleman who had semantic dementia. Now, so his wife was there as well. Um, it was a couple of years ago when I did the study. So I went there to do some cognitive testing that was part of the study. But taking the informed consent was a big hurdle in itself so he was he still had the cognitive faculties as to like think but he just couldn't transmit it via mm. his language mm. which was quite upsetting mm. as well so in the end we decided that it was best if the wife um signed mm. like as a consultee basically mm. um but it stuck with me because he could still, when I gave him certain tasks of the ACE3 or other neuropsychological batteries, he was acing them. But he just <laughs> couldn't do the language bit. So mm. so that's one example of a difficulty assessing capacity as well, mm. I suppose, because he couldn't relay back to me that he like understood what the study is about because mm. of his verbal limitations, mm. speech mm. limitations. So mm. that's another example. Mm, yeah, it can be very difficult if somebody has a communication difficulty. Yeah. Um, and, you know, putting in all the appropriate supports can be difficult if you don't have skills in speech and language and communication. I hear that time and time again, that people aren't sure which strategies might work best for somebody or which strategies are actually available or you're not trained in various mm. different communication strategies. Absolutely. Yeah. Um so, Ida, have you undertaken or seen any good examples? So, any examples of innovative practice in this area at all? Um, yes. <laughs> they, are, they are not common, I must say. But when I've seen them, um, all, all of the good examples that I've witnessed, they have um, two characteristics. One is... And, and this is pretty amazing when the research team understands that taking consent is a part of, of a person-centered care framework. And this is very important because then the process becomes, you know, an, an, a dynamic in which the, the, 
the previous experiences of the participants are taken into account and the motivations and the emotions and the family comes on board and the input is valued. So communication becomes much more easy. And the other element is when the research team commits, really commits to cognitive accessibility. Mm. And and this is actually something that everybody um, in theory understands, but very few people put into practice, really. And and I think that, you know, when 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 you really want to operate under the principles of cognitive accessibility and produce a real accessible environment not only the documents you really need to spend time planning so for yeah. instance it's not only about making um easy read uh, documents because sometimes the, the there are some studies that are so complicated that the length of the information is a barrier in itself yeah. so you need to you know you need to spend time thinking about the study, meeting with the team and trying to summarize the most and highlight the most uh, relevant points. All, all this takes time. And the other element is that sometimes when, when you want really to conduct and, and take consent in a, in, a, in a way that it is respectful with the um, principles of cognitive accessibility, sometimes you need to move away from some standards, like for instance, you need to explain concepts and procedures uh, using experiences. Yes. Like maybe taking, I remember in the past, I remember a patient of mine with semantic dementia and she was a pharmacist and she didn't remember anymore what MRI scan was. So I took her to the machine and I showed her around and I explained because there wasn't, she could not understand the concept if she didn't have a direct experience. Yeah. And there are many ways in which we can do this. We can also use videos and yes. we can build small stories of, you know, with a participant going through the different um, uh, research tests, the, the, the cognitive testing and the blood and the MRI scan or the training or whatever. And there are free tools in the internet that can help us do all this. So when, when I've seen in practice, these two principles, the person-centered approach and the commitment with uh, cognitive accessibility, for me, it's been like the mm-hmm. ideal way mm-hmm. of taking consent, really. I saw, I recently saw some co-produced mm. video participant information exactly. yeah. distributed to um, for a research uh, and study, perfect, and it was wonderful. It? Yeah. <laughs> it, was, and it was co-produced as well, exactly. and it was so particularly powerful in my mind I mean have you guys had much experience or seen any co-produced consent forms no no you haven't yeah I uh, I spoke about this um on this podcast once the the bad experience that I had with an ethics committee where I produced an easy read information sheet with um people with cognitive impairments but the committee didn't like it and obviously the committee really? win in that situation because you know you have to satisfy yeah. a committee rather than the people <laughs> yeah <laughs> so yeah, yeah. that was sort of an awkward situation well, but... that's so interesting because I've had the opposite experience <clears throat> where I produced an accessible um so in speech and language therapy we um use the word inclusive communication rather than easy read or accessible inclusive communication um, and we produced those with people with primary progressive aphasia. And when they, the ethics committee asked me what I'd produced um, and I was able to explain that I'd co-produced these um, and 
they were so delighted with them and they also then said well where are the ones for the carers without dementia and I explained that I was using the the inclusive ones because they include both people with communication difficulties and without they were absolutely delighted um, so it's quite interesting because there's obviously that the ethics committees have their own opinions too and I think my case is rare of having spoken to other yeah. people I, I was surprised by that and I think that's not the norm yeah yeah I would I would hope so yeah. Hope so. Um, so I just wondered whether you guys felt that most people, even without dementia, I mean, we've, I've kind of already touched on this by talking about um, inclusive communication being appropriate for both people with di communication difficulties with dementia and without. But do you find that most people, even without dementia, find reading jargon-filled consent forms difficult? I do. Everyone's giggling <laughs> slightly. Um, yes, I, I, but I make it practice to kind of always go through the these jargon-filled information sheets and consent forms. Mm. One thing I also have, um, so I do a lot of uh, postal questionnaires. So yeah. I, they're being handed out by clinicians, for example, to family carers. Yeah. They take them with them. They've got a free post return envelope and they, alongside the questionnaire, they return the consent form. Uh, yeah, but as opposed to signing their initials in the box, I get about 50% back where I just get a tick. Yeah. So that's a bit of an ish, a barrier, yeah. So, um, but yeah, when I go face-to-face -face and do tests or interviews, then I kind of make a practice to just talk through the study anyways to avoid any potential misunderstandings. I think I've done that myself, like signing... <laughs> my mortgage not tick the right box and then had it sent back to me because yeah. <laughs> I hadn't actually read the fine print yeah we've all done it with the t's and c's indeed right? interestingly in my doctoral research I had the the standard information sheet and the short information sheet and because I didn't want to be patronizing to people I offered everyone the choice that's a nice um, idea thinking thinking that okay I wouldn't want to be patronizing to people who had more advanced dementias they may still want to um, read the longer one what actually happened is inevitably everybody went for the short one yeah even those who you would say okay they don't need a short information sheet everybody did and I think in that situation I'd be the same if you offer me a long that, one and a short one yeah. I'll pick the short one yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. nobody hates that nobody enjoys reading yeah. <laughs> long pieces of text filled paper unless you're an academic and a researcher and still and so I think we can probably agree that even people without dementia benefit from accessible or inclusive information as well as those with. So I'm, I'm mindful of the time and um, I just wondered whether there was any there were any tools that you may find useful, have found useful that you'd like to share. Um, I think we've already started alluding to some, but I wondered if there are any specific ones that you'd like to mention. I really like a guide to to um, build uh, a breed material and accessible material, which is a guide produced by changepeople.org. Uh, okay. And, uh, and it is uh, my favorite because it lets by example. So it is a cognitively accessible guide itself, explaining how to produce cognitively accessible material. And it comes... Um, explains how to produce your documents, how to uh, include the pictures, many examples, and also a checklist. At the end, 
So you, when you are working on your document, you can check if you are following all the recommendations. And I, I really like it. I think mm -hmm. it is very friendly and very, yeah. Nice. Does anybody else have any? No, this is great. I'm learning here as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to look that up now. Yeah. Well, there's, there's one I think I've mentioned to you, Ida, before, actually, yeah. produced by um, a speech and language therapist called Jill Pearl, who works with a third That's sector right. organisation, um, Speakability, and she, she developed a resource for... Um, people with non-progressive aphasia with the NIHR and it's actually designed around consent so it's it's got lots and lots and lots of images that have been co-produced with people with communication difficulties in their families um, and so and you can cut and paste them into your consent forms and it covers loads and loads of domains uh, that are often really really hard to present or represent in pictorial mm -hmm. formats it's really neat um, so yeah, I definitely recommend that. Yeah, actually, I use it a lot since you, you show it to me. Ah, yeah, great. Yes, <laughs> we're changing the world yeah. one picture at a time. <laughs> um, so it is actually time, sadly, to end today's podcast recording. And I'd like to thank each of our panelists, uh, Clarissa, Ida, and James. But I just wondered if there are any final points before we go that you'd like to make. Um, any top tips for any early career researchers who might be struggling with this topic? I would recommend to shadow or go along with someone who's done it a lot and is currently collecting data and assessing mental capacity to shadow that person for a bit. And then afterwards also have a chat about, oh, what made you then decide that this person has capacity or not to just kind of learn a bit. I think it's just learning by experience as well. Yeah, that's nice. And formal training. People yeah. should feel, you know, like they, 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 sometimes it seems that people feel a bit scared of admitting that they don't know how to do it or that they need training. And training is a great thing. You are acquiring skill, skills and education. And there are lots of resources out there and a lot of webinars. And the, um, the NHS has a lot of resources and and documents that you can use and also not being scared of saying I don't know how to do it and, and seek for help because we all started from scratch and then we develop skills over time but you need to you need to you know get advice from others and you need to educate yourself and you need to be exposed to good examples. Yeah, I think shadowing, if possible, is great advice. Um, and also just to remember that the capacity isn't this set in stone term. There are some people who are in a grey area. Um, and so if you're uncertain, that's not necessarily a comment on you. That Indeed. may be a comment on the reality of the situation. Indeed. Yeah. And um, I think I could keep talking about this topic forever. <laughs> I'm really interested in mental capacity, decision-making, consent, and I... Um, I often tell people to actually go and read the Mental Capacity Act. It's not that difficult. Um, or things like uh, there, there's guidelines. So the NICE have produced a guideline on decision-making and mental capacity for my sins. I was a member of the committee who wrote that guideline. And the first recommendation is around training and that any organisation you work for is responsible for training you in this area. So I'm really glad that you guys have all brought up different kind of versions of training shadowing mentoring formal training so um 
If you do, any of the listeners have anything else to add on this topic, please do post your comments against this podcast or on our website and drop us a line on Twitter using the hashtag ECRDementia. We have profiles on all of today's panellists on our websites and I think most of the panellists also have um, Twitter profiles. Um, maybe you guys could shout out your profile names. Yeah, mine is at Clarissa Giebel. At Aida Suarez. And I'm at James Rue Fletcher. That's R-U. Great. And I'm at Volkma underscore Anna. Um, so there will also be a transcript of this podcast. So please do tell any colleagues who may not be able to listen. And finally, please remember to subscribe and leave a review on this podcast through iTunes, Spotify and SoundCloud. And please tell your friends and colleagues. Thank you very much. This was a podcast brought to you by Dementia Researcher. Everything you need in one place. Register today at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk.